Well, thank you, Michael. <clears throat> and uh, how many of you remember the Pioneer Project that Michael helped set up in Carbondale? I see one, two, three, four, five, six hands. Boy, I've buried more dead mics than an Irish undertaker. Uh, <laughs> so there's at least, at least uh, eight people in the room who know what that was about. Those of you who don't know, ask the ones who do know. And I'll encourage Michael to get with the other old timers and write up what y'all did, because if you walk around this town and see how flourishing it is and what a strong community it is, I think that has a lot to do with that early initiative in the mid-80s. We are about to see Al Gore's new film about climate solutions, and most of those are about energy. So I thought it could be useful first to sketch for you some context about the energy transformation that we're all creating together. And I'm especially grateful that Wilderness Workshop and CLEAR sponsored this uh, in this valley uh, on energy issues. Uh, CLEAR is doing the hard practical work of bringing RMI's vision to reality. And that work starts, as always, with using energy in a way that saves money. Now, energy savings deliver uh, <clears throat> more global energy services than oil. And in the U.S. since 1975, they have saved 30 times as much cumulative energy as all renewables have added. But efficiency is just getting started. Back in 1975, our government and industry all insisted that the energy needed to make a dollar of GDP couldn't fall. A year later, I heretically suggested it could drop 72% in 50 years. So far, it's dropped 56% in 41 years. And yet, just the innovations already made by 2010 uh, can save now another threefold or twice what I originally thought at a third the real cost, and seven years later that looks conservative. Uh, indeed, optimizing vehicles and buildings and factories as whole systems can often make very big energy savings cost less than small or no savings, turning diminishing returns into expanding returns. Such integrative design is how our Empire State Building retrofit saved 38% of its energy with a three-year payback. But three years later, our cost-effective Denver retrofit of this federal complex saved 70%, making that half-century-old government office more efficient than the best new U.S. office up in Golden which in turn is less than half as efficient as our own new net positive no mechanicals office in basalt. And yet its technologies existed over a decade ago. What mainly improved is not technology but design, the way we choose and combine technologies. In industry and buildings too, 
uh, low friction pipe and duct design could save roughly half the world's coal-fired electricity with extremely juicy returns, and yet such rearrangement of designers' metal furniture remains largely unnoticed because it's not a technology, it's a design method. Both technology and design are moving efficiency into fast forward. Prior lighting improvements are being swept away as LEDs in each decade get 30 times more efficient, 20 times brighter, 10 times cheaper. Saving an eighth of the world's electricity, they're stressing electric utilities, which since 1892 have sold electricity as a commodity, not the services you want, like hot showers and cold beer. So efficient use doesn't cut utilities' costs, it cuts their revenues. The whole business model is upside down. What else changes this fast? Well, LEDs backwards and inside out are PVs, photovoltaics, and in the past five years, their plummeting prices have made solar and wind power cost less than just the fossil fuels, the dash lines at the bottom, that we feed into power plants. That often makes old coal and gas and nuclear plants shut down as uneconomic to run. Indeed, powerful disruptors are converging on the electricity industry from at least eight directions. And these eight Pac-Men of the apocalypse move fast. They don't just add, they exponentiate. They're not lone wolves, they hunt in packs. Sorry, they multiply quickly and they can gobble up half of utility revenues in the 2020s. Together, they are creating an alien competitive landscape faster than most utilities cultures can cope. Three years ago, all central power plants were called dinosaurs, and the full quote was, too big, too inflexible, not even relevant for backup power in the long run. Who said that? It wasn't Greenpeace. It was Union Bank of Switzerland. Now, it's usually a good idea to sell customers what they want before someone else does, and customers are figuring out that they can use less electricity more productively and timely. They can make their own they can even trade it with each other. So for example, Dutch customers can now buy renewable electricity directly from other customers on this peer-to-peer -peer website of Van de Bron, literally from the source. One utility executive I know bought his electricity from the guy in the upper left photo because the price was right and that was a really cute piglet. <laughs> and then he got a long handwritten Christmas card from his electricity supplier. What big utility can dream of such customer intimacy? <laughs> U.S. wholesale electricity prices are now uh, widely undercut by both wind power and solar power. And even without their temporary subsidies, generally smaller than the permanent subsidies to non-renewables, unsubsidized wind and solar, which I've drawn as asterisks, are now winning in global markets at or below three cents a kilowatt hour. Last year alone, Mexican solar power prices fell 37%. European offshore wind prices fell 43%. And of course, when renewables get cheaper, we buy more, so they get cheaper, so we buy more. So renewables were 55% of the global generating capacity added last year. And yet we are still told that only coal, gas, and nuclear stations can keep the lights on. In fact, uh, this evening, uh, Secretary Perry is releasing a document 
implying that. Uh, <clears throat> and his reasoning is that they're 24-7 while wind power and PVs are variable and hence supposedly unreliable. However, <clears throat> variable doesn't mean unpredictable. Here's how accurately the French grid operator in one stormy winter month forecast a day ahead the output of the country's wind farms compared with what actually happened a day later, and I'll bet they wish they could forecast demand that accurately. Indeed, the whole reason we built the grid is no generator is 24-7. They all break. And when a giant plant breaks, you lose a billion watts in milliseconds, often abruptly, for weeks or months. And grids were designed to manage this intermittence by backing up failed plants with working plants. But in exactly the same way, uh, and often at lower cost, grids can manage the forecastable variations of solar and wind power by backing up those variable renewables with a portfolio of other renewables, all forecasted and integrated and diversified by type and by location. So in Texas, which has no big hydro dams and is uh, not connected to the rest of the United States, uh, <clears throat> we have three grids, east, west, and Texas. Uh, a, 20, a 2050 summer week of expected loads might look like this. It can get a lot smaller and less peaky with efficient use. So let's do this all with renewables. We'll, we'll meet the first 86% of the annual electricity needs with wind and photovoltaics. You can say they are indeed quite variable. And the last 14% from dispatchable renewables, the ones you can have whenever you want, like solar thermal electric with heat storage, small hydro, geothermal, burning feedlot biogas in existing gas turbines, burning municipal or agricultural or industrial waste, burning obsolete energy studies. So now we're all renewable, <laughs> except that it doesn't very well match the load. You can see we have both surpluses and deficits. So let's take the surpluses and put them into two kinds of distributed storage that are worth buying anyway, ice storage, air conditioning, and smart charging of electric cars, then we can recover that stored energy when needed and fill the last gaps with unobtrusively flexible demand. So now we're 100% renewable every hour of the year, and only about 5% of the annual renewable output is left over. So based on those low prices you just saw, the economics should be terrific. Some grid operators are actually doing this today. In fact, three years ago, Germany was meeting 27% of its annual inland electric needs from renewables, Italy 33. But four other European countries with modest to no hydropower were about half renewably powered, adding no bulk storage and with superior reliability. In fact, for Germany and Denmark, 10 times as good as ours. In 2015, the ultra-reliable former East German utility got 49% of all its electricity from renewables, three-quarters of them the variable solar and wind. So the operators have learned to run these grids the way a conductor leads a symphony orchestra. No instrument plays all the time, but the ensemble continuously makes beautiful music. Now, electric vehicles are going to make power grids more flexible 
while saving money, oil, air, and climate. Their global sales grew 60% two years ago, 42% last year when China sold more than the world had sold two years before and launched five years of further tenfold growth. Some respected forecasts of disruptive oil savings that are set to recrash oil prices in another six or eight years do not yet count India or Germany or several other countries that are targeting all electric vehicles by 2030. And they don't count four things that are accelerating electric vehicle growth. These are all now in play, uh, taking out about two-thirds of the weight and drag in the vehicle. That saves up to two-thirds of the costly batteries. Or fee-baits, which help make over a third of Norway's new cars electric, 50 times the U.S. share. And they're running in five other countries, plus India on the way. Fee-bait just means when you buy a new car, you pay a fee or get a rebate which and how big depends on how efficient it is. Thirdly, repaying up to half the total sticker price of an EV by monetizing its value to the power grid. And fourth, new mobility business models that strongly favor electric traction. Everything from shareable cars like Zipcar and Lyft, uh, or Zipcar and uh, Getaround rather, to mobility as a service like Lyft and Uber, to emerging autonomous cars. Now as batteries nearly fourfold, or GM says fivefold, price drop in the last five years continues, electric vehicles in the 2020s are going to cost the same uh, at the dealer as today's gasoline cars. Uh, and their abundant cheap batteries also imply distributed solar everywhere, gas industry distressed, and a far more flexible grid, plugging the cars into the grid as you saw in the Texas examples. Uh, <clears throat> when the cars are parked, not being driven, which is most of the time, uh, actually will very much help to integrate more wind and solar power. Now, electric vehicles can also get cheaper and spread faster if we first make cars two or three times more efficient. The carbon fiber electric cars that I invented 25 years ago, we designed 17 years ago, and Toyota used our methods 10 years ago to design as a threefold lighter Prius-sized plug-in hybrid. Those entered the market in Germany in 2013. In fact, the one I drove here in tonight with your mayor as a, as a passenger, thank you for increasing my load factor, uh, <coughs> that, that BMW is already profitable, uh, best car and winter car I ever had, and its carbon fiber is paid for by needing fewer batteries. So an improved manufacturing process that my team developed in Glenwood Springs uh, made this test part in one minute a decade ago. It's pretty good for uh, my carbon cap. <laughs> and we sold the technology to a German tier one press maker uh, four years ago, and now it can make a complex two-by-two-meter carbon fiber part in one minute. So if we made all U.S. autos this way, we would save one and a half Saudis or half an OPEC worth of oil at a cost below $10 per saved barrel because the carbon fiber is paid for by radically simpler automaking with 80% less investment and by two-thirds smaller batteries. But these two new technologies, lightweighting and electrification, plus three new business models, uh, 
<coughs> are rapidly morphing autos from pigs, that is, personal internal combustion, gasoline, steel-dominated vehicles, to SEALs, shareable electric autonomous lightweight service vehicles. In May, India adopted our government industry workshops blueprint for a radical mobility transformation competing with China's. The U.S. is headed for peak car ownership in the next five years, and public transit enabled by information technology is rapidly improving. Meanwhile, redesigned cities are achieving the same access with two-thirds less driving and one-third less concrete. Now, let's start putting these pieces together. Even six years ago, just by combining vehicle and building and industrial efficiencies, our business book, Reinventing Fire, rigorously showed how to triple U.S. efficiency and quintuple renewables by 2050, needing no oil, no coal, no nuclear energy, a third less natural gas <clears throat> to run a uh, 2.6-fold bigger economy uh, while growing, uh, by, by, uh, while saving $5 trillion, strengthening national security and cutting fossil carbon emissions by 82 to 86 percent. This turns out to need no new inventions and no act of Congress, but with smart city and state policies, it could be led by business for profit. That is indeed now happening. This U.S. energy transformation is on track in the marketplace. These best buys are also the most effective solutions to big global problems that hazard every country's security and prosperity. And focusing on such shared outcomes, not diverse motives, can win wide political support. Stimulated by those U.S. findings, at the G20 a year ago, China's National Development and Reform Commission published its roadmap for China's energy revolution, aided by Berkeley Lab, Energy Foundation, China, and Rocky Mountain Institute. And this foundational strategy document uh, shows how to, by 2050, save $3.5 trillion in China, run a seven-fold bigger economy using today's energy seven times more productively, shift supply two-thirds off fossil fuels, emit 42% less carbon, burn 80% less coal, and get 13 times more work out of each ton of fossil carbon. So if we extrapolate these on-track U.S. findings and strategically adopted Chinese findings to the other half of the world, cross-checking against similar results in Europe, the world could achieve a two Celsius degree climate trajectory while providing the same or better energy services about $18 trillion cheaper. Then reinvesting in natural systems carbon removal, uh, that is not treating soil like dirt, could attain about a one and a half degree trajectory still with trillions of dollars left over plus huge hidden benefits. And making climate protection not costly but profitable should simplify the politics. Now as that energy value proposition transformed, markets can flip with breathtaking speed. On New York's Fifth Avenue in 1900, you have to look hard to find the first car. 13 years later, you have to look even harder to find the last horse, and I'm not at all convinced there's a horse in this picture. The horse and buggy industry thought it had many decades to adapt. 
but Henry Ford's Model T got 62% cheaper in 13 years, and car-owning households soared from 8 to 80% in a decade, three-quarters financed by newfangled car loans. Today, photovoltaic modules, solar panels, just got 80% cheaper in five years. Three-quarters of our rooftop solar is innovatively financed, and Ford's and Edison's industries are merging to eat Rockefeller's industry. So today's horse and buggy industries are forgetting that as these photos show, the pace of transformation is set not by incumbents but by insurgents who are not inhibited by the incumbents' business models, legacy assets, cultures, or inertias. And investors flee even before customers do. Capital markets keenly sniff out disruption. And once they think you're in or even headed for the toaster, they don't wait for the toast to get done before they decapitalize you and invest in your successors. <clears throat> That's how a little auto startup called Tesla Motors surpassed the market cap of Ford and GM while selling about 1% as many cars. As Jack Welch said, if the rate of change on the outside is greater than the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. To conclude then, today's energy transformation is not just uh, fundamental, it is elemental. The first industrial revolution was the age of carbon. It created our prosperity and the world's mightiest industries from coal and oil and gas. But now that obsolete age of carbon is giving way to the modern age of silicon. Silicon microchips, telecommunications, and software turn people from dumb to smart, from isolated to networked. Silicon power electronics make electricity interconvertible and precisely controllable, replacing fiery molecules with obedient electrons. And silicon solar cells enable the ascent of energy from mining the fires of hell to harvesting the breath and radiance of heaven. So I want to thank you all, each of you, and especially Clear, for your good work and your kind attention. And now let's see what Al Gore has to say. <laughs>